Right on, let's pray as we come to God's word today. Lord, we just thank you that we can uh, come to you, Jesus. We want to ask your blessing on our time in your word, Lord. It's your word. It's a, it's a sword. And I pray, Lord, that it would pierce our hearts this morning, that you would speak to us, that each one of us would be challenged, Lord, that you just meet us right where we're at, Lord. I thank you for the way that your spirit just tailors the word for each one of our, our needs, God. You can give an individual message to every person that's here this morning. And we just pray for that to happen, Lord, that you'd, that you'd bless us and that your spirit would anoint this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on. So we're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 8 this morning. We're going to start at verse 23. We're coming out of, been coming out of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, where we were looking at that in Matthew's chapter 5 through 7. And as Matthew brings us out of the Sermon on the Mount, he's trying to answer this question. It's this, who's this man from Galilee? Who is this preacher of the Sermon on the Mount? Who, who is this man who just delivered the greatest sermon ever proclaimed about the kingdom of God. And so Matthew's going to help us try and get a sense of who this man is, help the, the audience get a sense of who this preacher is. And what he's going to offer us is demonstrations, proofs that this preacher is the king of the kingdom that he has been proclaiming. This is King Jesus. And we, we started to crack into this section of scripture in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 last week. In Matthew 8 and 9, uh, the gospel writer Matthew compiles for us nine miracle stories and he breaks them into three groups of three. Last week we looked, looked at the first three. This morning we're going to look at the second three. And intermingled between each of these three, three miracle accounts, Matthew tells us about uh, the way people were responding to Jesus and some of the things that were coming out of that. And so this morning we'll look at these, this second group of three miracles and their impact on the crowds. I would say this about these next three miracles. These are true power encounters. These are major power struggles that are going down here that demonstrate the power of Jesus and he wins every single time. Jesus wins. And in these three miracles, they, they don't just demonstrate that Jesus is king of the kingdom, but I want to emphasize this this morning. Not only is he king of the kingdom, but he is the prince of peace, as the scripture proclaims. And there are three precincts over which Jesus demonstrates himself as the prince of peace that we're going to see this morning, and they're this. The material world, the spiritual world, and morality. He stills the storm, he drives out demons, and he forgives sin. He, he, he quiets nature and spirit and conscience. He is the prince of peace. And so let's pick it up. In verse 23 it says this. And when he got into the boat. His disciples followed him. And behold there was a great storm on the sea. So that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying. Save us Lord. We are perishing. And he said to them. Why are you afraid O little of faith. O you of little faith. Then he rose and he rebuked the wind and the sea and there was great calm and the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Jesus is prince of peace over the material world. He, he rules over matter. 
He rules over the physical substance of the universe. Uh, Nature yields to his word. Nature yields to the commands of King Jesus. The Sea of Galilee, well, we read earlier in Matthew chapter 8 that in, in in verse 14 that, sorry, in verse 18 that when Jesus saw the great crowd, he gave the order to go over to the other side, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is a, a neat, beautiful place. In some ways, it kind of reminds me of, of around here or, or a bit of a mixture of this area and the Okanagan and this beautiful lake. And the Sea of Galilee actually sits at 700 feet below sea level. It is the lowest elevation freshwater lake in the world. The only other body of water that's lower than that is the Dead Sea, but that's not a freshwater body. It's, it's got a high content of salt. And so the factor of the low elevation of the Sea of Galilee and the surrounding Golan Hills and the Jordan Valley and all of these things make it susceptible to having these storms whip up on the lake. I remember a couple trips back to Israel when we were at Capernaum and we were getting ready to get on the boat. I could not believe the waves that were rolling in at Capernaum. It just seemed like the wind wasn't even blowing and these three-footers are crashing on the beach and and I thought, wow, it's a beautiful day. It It wouldn't take much and the wind could just rip it up. Now, likely the disciples were traveling some sort of distance of about 10 to 15 kilometers um, from the north end of the lake towards the eastern shore. And a good chunk of these men in the boat, it made their living on this water. You got men like Peter and Andrew and James and John who were professional fishermen. They had um, made their living fishing on these waters. And so you have to think that this is quite the storm to put this kind of terror and these And this group of men that were so familiar with the waters. And Matthew says this, that the boat was being swamped. Mark's gospel, which is actually Peter's account, says that the waves were breaking into the boat. That the boat was being filled with with water. And you know what happens when a boat fills with water. When a ship fills with water, it goes down to the bottom of the sea. And Matthew says that the storm was great. The, the original language, the Greek actually says this, megas seismos. Don't have to be a Greek scholar to figure that out, right? <laughs> it means this, it was a shaker, seismos. It was violent. Hell was let loose on the lake and as the wind blew and the squall roared out of the hills, this was absolute violence on the Sea of Galilee and these men We're fearing for their lives. And the crazy thing is this. What's Jesus doing? Sleeping. Like seriously? How how does he do that? You know that this is the only time recorded in the gospel. Mark tells this story. Luke also tells this same story. It's the only time recorded in the gospels that Jesus slept. Is in the middle of this storm. He was sleeping. The, the storm came as the disciples obeyed Jesus. They were doing what he said. He, he said, let's go over to the other side of the lake. They all got in the boat together. Jesus was with them. They were, they were acting in obedience and the storm came. It's not like when the storm came for Jonah. You, re, you remember that. The storm came on the sea with Jonah because he disobeyed. He, he slept through it because he is, uh, you know, in a spiritual stupor but Jesus was sleeping because he was tired (laughs) it shows his humanity that he was a that he was a man that he was 
exhausted, physically exhausted after, you know, hard days of working and being with people and, and teaching and doing the miracles. And he was too tired to keep awake while they, while they were on the sea. Too exhausted to be disturbed by the storm. And in his sleeping, we see his humanity, but the beauty is, is this of this story, that in his speaking to the storm, we're going to see his deity. You know, storms come in our lives often, don't they? The storm swells up, and sometimes in the midst of life when we're going through a storm, it, it, can, it can feel and it can seem like Jesus is sleeping. Life pounds, and life batters, and the wind blows and it feels like we're going to be capsized and sink. And Jesus is seen sleeping here, but the thing about Jesus is this, he may sleep, but he never sleeps in. He may sleep, but he never oversleeps. He never gets up and says, oh, whoops, I, I forgot to set the alarm. You know, I hit snooze too many times because I was too tired to get out of bed. And the disciples went and they, they woke him as he was sleeping and they said this, save us Lord, we are perishing. It's kind of this interesting mixture of faith and fear in their statement. Save us, that's faith. Save us Jesus. We're perishing, that's fear speaking. Faith and fear mingled together here and the amazing thing is, is that Jesus doesn't stand up and instantly rebuke the storm. Though the storm rages on, Jesus takes some time to say this. Waves are pounding. They're crashing over the edge of the boat. And Jesus said, why are you afraid? Why are you, of, why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? And as Jesus addresses his disciples' fears, he just lets the storm rage on. The storm could do no harm. The their overwhelming fear was, was the fruit of a deficient faith, Jesus was saying. You, you have little faith. You know, there were a couple things when I look at this story that should have given them absolute confidence in the face of the storm. The first one is this. Jesus gave the order. We're going over to the other side of the lake. We're going over. He, he didn't say, we're going to go out into the middle of the lake and we're going to drown out there. It's going to go, it's good. I, I'm going to walk away from the whole thing, but you're going down. He said, we're going to the other side. And faith can look into a storm and say, Jesus said, I am going to the other side. So waves can pound and wind can blow. It's not that I like this, but I'm confident in the word that Jesus spoke. He said it, I believe it. He said, we're going to the other side. That, that should have given them confidence. And secondly, the fact that Jesus is in the boat with them. Was the boat going to go down with Jesus in it? I, I don't think so. And faith says this as he challenged their faith. faith. Faith should say this. I will trust and not be afraid. Mark's gospel tells us that the disciples actually said this to him as well. They said, don't you care that we are perishing? Which sounds just like me sometimes, which I'm sure sounds just like you sometimes. Don't you care, God? Don't you know what I'm going through? Don't you know what's going on here? You know, we find ourselves in the storm of life and we begin in our fear to insult God. Don't you know what's going on here, God? Don't you know how afraid I am? Don't you care? Don't you see what's going on? How could you put me in this spot? Don't you see I am perishing? 
And Jesus challenged that thinking. He challenged it. He called it little faith. Remember the centurion? We, we looked at him last week, the story of the centurion. He came to Jesus and he said this, uh, I know how authority works. I tell a soldier to go and do this and he does it. I tell my servant to come and he comes. I know that you just need to say the word and my servant will be well. You don't need to come to my house. I understand how authority works. And Jesus said, truly I tell you that with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I mean in contrast to this centurion, Roman Gentile centurion, we have the disciples here in a boat with Jesus. Where, there, where the centurion's faith was great, Jesus calls their faith little. Where is your faith? And then I love this scene. Picture it in your mind's eye that Jesus rose and he rebuked the wind and the waves and there was a great calm. Peace, be still. The storm was great, Matthew says, and then he says the calm was great. The calm that came after the storm was equally as great at the word of Jesus. See, the word calms the storm. The word of God calms the storm. The the spoken word of God by Jesus calmed the storm. He said, peace be still. It literally means this, be muzzled. What a great picture, eh? That Jesus put a muzzle on the storm. Muzzled the storm like it was an animal, like a dog on a leash with its master. Howling wind and waves cowered and rolled over onto their belly at the word of Jesus. At the master's command. And as we see Jesus in this story, we, we, we see in his sleep the, the weakness of humanity, the weakness of his manhood. But in his word and rebuking the storm, we see the power of his divinity. That nature yields to the commands of King Jesus. He is the prince of peace over the material world. And this storm had not simply swept over the boat. It had swept over the souls of the disciples in the boat. And at the word of Jesus, the storm ceased. And then what swept over the souls of the disciples was this sense of awe at who this man was. And they said this. They marveled and said, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? What sort of man is this? And that was the point. This is not just any man. This is the God man. And if the storm had never come, the disciples never would have learned that about the nature of Jesus. You know, I think about my life, your life. Storms come. They come. They come when we don't expect them. They come when we don't want them. The wind picks up and life begins to pound. And we could say to ourselves, what is the purpose of this storm? I think of the disciples. The, the, the storm moved them to terror and moved them to the place where they needed to cry out to Jesus and ask for help. And often in our lives, the, the storms that come upon us move us to terror. They, they, they quicken faith. They say, man, I need to pray. I need to they, they lead us to this place where we say, I, I need to spend time in prayer. And I, I need God to bring a miracle in the midst of this. And, and in the midst of all of that, as God just begins to work and we pray and we meet with him, what do we learn? We learn about the nature of Jesus. 
And storms will come and sometimes it will seem like Jesus is sleeping. But Jesus always awakens to the cry of his children, his followers, his disciples. Sometimes it's a cry of faith. Other times it's a cry of fear. Other times the cry is mingled faith and fear, but Jesus always awakened. You know, you think about yourself if you're a parent, how when your children would call you in the night and how you'd awaken and you go to see what the need was. And Jesus will awaken and he will bring the peace that is needed when we call out to him. So I would say this, don't forget, Jesus is with you. Whatever storm comes, whatever comes in life, he's in complete control even when it seems like he's sleeping. Check out verse 28 with me. It says this, when he came to the other side, oh, wow, they made it. Of course they made it. Jesus said, we're going to the other side. When they came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him. Coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. We saw in the first miracle that Jesus is prince of peace over the material world, over matter, over nature. Here in this story, we see that Jesus is prince of peace over the spiritual world. He, he's captain of the Lord's hosts. But not just that, he has power over uh, the demonic, over demons. These two guys, I mean, when you read this story, these, these men might have been more dangerous than the storm. They're, they're living in the midst of these tombs. They terrorize the neighborhood. No one could pass that way. Other gospel accounts tell us that these men could not be bound with chain. They broke loose. They, they were violent. Uh, the other gospel accounts tell us that one of these men was running. The other gospels put more emphasis on one man than the other. That, that they were running around naked. No one could pass that way. You know, I think about Jesus. He, he calms the storm, but what does Satan do? You know, Satan, on the other hand, robs a person of sanity. Satan robs a person of self-control. Satan fills a life with fear and he robs of relationship. He robs of relationship with family. He robs of relationship with friends. And demon possession is real. It's a real thing. It's a terrible reality where a, a demonic spirit takes over a person's life. It's almost like there's two conscience, consciousnesses going on and. and on in this body and the spirit gains control over a person's life and when Jesus showed up and he comes into the region the demons knew who they were dealing with they cried out what have you to do with us O son of God 
Have you come here to torment us before the time? I, I would say this about the demons. They had good theology. Be- better th- theology than some churches. They, they identified Jesus as the son of God and they understood that he would be their judge at the end of time. They knew that their control over these men was about to be terminated at the presence of Jesus. At the authoritative word of Jesus who would say go. In the other gospels they, they identify themselves as legion. He says what is your name? Legion. And to me it's a neat picture. You know a, a Roman legion had 6,000 soldiers. If we think back even to last Sunday. Uh, the centurion who had authority over 100 soldiers. Who understood authority. Who understood Jesus' authority. And this theme of authority continues here. Because with the word, Jesus isn't commanding a hundred. He's commanding 6,000 demons and they're dealt with. Jesus who said, you know, to his disciples, at a word I can call legions to my disposal, legions of angels. This is the authority of Jesus. And so as these demons had embodied these men, preferring to have something to embody, they, they, they ask permission to go into the herd of pigs. And with a single word from Jesus, go, they went. And the pigs, I mean, think about the pigs. The pigs seem to have preferred death to demonic possession because they ran into the lake and they were drowned. Now this was a, this was a Gentile region. We know that because they were farming pigs. Jews didn't keep pigs. They were unclean animals. And so you can just imagine the financial loss, uh, the financial effect in that community losing that many livestock. Even if these two men were set free and put into their right, their right mind and there was a new sense of peace in the community, there was safety in the neighborhood, uh, the community was deeply affected. Verse 34 tells us that at the report of the herdsmen, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. The whole city. And this is the first time in Matthew's gospel that we begin to see this rejection of Jesus. We're going to see it more and more and more as the, the stories go because more concerned about the loss of property than the newfound freedom of these two men, the, the people of the city asked Jesus to leave. They asked him to go. And you know, if there is a limit to the power of Jesus, it, it's, it's where people send him away and ask him to leave. Go, Jesus, we don't want you here. Okay. He's a gentleman. And this crew cared more about the pigs than people. And Jesus doesn't stay where he isn't wanted. And so at their request, he leaves. You know, I think about these two men that were set free from the demons. Jesus came and he braved the storm to meet these two men. This is the grace of God. He he delivered them by the power of his word. He, He restored them to sanity. He restored them to society. He restored them or brought them into his service. The other gospels tell us that one of these men said, Jesus, I want to go with you. If you're going to leave, I want to go with you. And Jesus said, no. You stay here and you go back to your home and back to your family and you tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And Jesus sent them home to be a witness. Jesus, the prince of peace over the spirit world. We come to chapter nine, it says this. Getting back into the boat, 
Verse 1. And getting into the boat, he crossed over into the city and came, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jesus is Prince of Peace over the material world. He's Prince of Peace over the spiritual world. And he is Prince of Peace over the moral behavior of humankind. He is Prince of Peace over sin. He knows our thoughts. He knows what's in our hearts. He has the right to forgive sin. I, I love this story. This is a cool story. This is, the man, this is the man that we read about in the other gospels who couldn't get into the house because there were so many people crowded in there. And so his four friends took him up onto the roof. They, they peeled back the layers of the roof and they lowered him down in front of Jesus uh, on, laying on his mat by ropes. They lowered him down in front of Jesus and Jesus said to him, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Which is awesome, but it seems like it's miles away from what the four friends were hoping for when they brought their, brought their friend to Jesus. Sins forgiven. That's, that's awesome. It's awesome. But we were hoping for something more than that. You know, like heal his paralysis, Jesus. But the reality is this, is that, that Jesus understands our deepest need. He, understand, he understood this man's deepest need. The man himself probably knew exactly what Jesus was saying. That his most pressing need, as much as his friends thought paralysis was the most pressing need, his most pressing need in his own heart was to know that God forgave his past. That his sins were forgiven. See, the forgiveness of sin is mankind's deepest need. The forgiveness of sin is my deepest need. It's your deepest need, whether you realize it or not. The most important thing in our lives is this. It's, and it's whether we realize it or not. The most important things is our, in our life is our relationship with God. Our, our relationship with the creator. And the truth of is, is this. Is if, if that relationship is wrong, all is wrong. If that is off, all of life is off. And if it's right, if we're right with Jesus, then it changes all of life, doesn't it? It changes everything. This man couldn't walk. But that wasn't killing him. He couldn't walk. But it wasn't killing him. Sin, on the other hand, his sin had left him separated from God. And that is death, the scripture says. That's death. To not be in relationship with God. You know, I think about the gospel. The, the gospel is amazing because we often want the gospel to come and cure our sorrow. Come cure my sorrow, Jesus. I can't walk. Make me walk. 
But the gospel always cures sin first. Sorrow is always secondary to Jesus. He cures sin first and he wants to cure you. He's, he's prince of peace over our, our sin. He heals. You know the tradition says this, that this man was paralyzed because he lived an immoral lifestyle. Whatever that means. That he had lived so immorally that it had taken a physical toll on his life. And he was paralyzed. And the forgiveness of his sin was his greatest need. You know, you think about the effects of sin, the guilt, the condemnation that sin produces in our life. It, it can have a paralyzing effect on you. Maybe not in a physical sense. Maybe, maybe you can walk, but spiritually, emotionally, relationally, we can be paralyzed by the effects of sin in our life. And Jesus knew what this man needed. He said, your sins, your sins are forgiven. But this is interesting because in verse 3 we, we read this, that behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. The scribes knew this. That only God can forgive sin. Jesus by declaring this man's sins forgiven was indirectly making a claim to be God. And the scribes knew it. They knew it. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Forgiveness of sin is exclusively the act of God. Because sin has to do with a person and their relationship with God and how it's severed. And only God can forgive that and restore that. Only God can remove the barrier of sin that exists between himself and his creation. Only God can do that. And the scribes were right. The scribes were absolutely right that Jesus was blaspheming. That is unless he himself was God. And in this account, we, in this story, we get a, a great insight into the nature of Jesus. Because it says this. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He knew what's in their hearts. That, that tells us about who he is. He knew what's in their hearts and he knows what's in your heart and my heart. And it's as though he said, I, I, I forgive your sins. It's as though he, as he said this, as he said, I forgive your sins. Who then do you believe that I am? Who am I claiming to be as I say such things? And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk? Which is easier? It's a trick question, actually. I think. Because in a sense, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why is that an easier thing to say? Because you can't, you can't measure that. You can't see that with your eye. You can't see what's going on with your eye in someone's heart when Jesus says your sins are forgiven. But if he say rise and walk, well that I can see with my eye. And so it's easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say rise and walk. Either the scribes were right that Jesus was a blasphemer or Jesus is divine. Either he's the blasphemer or he is God in the flesh. You know, Jesus in the story calls himself the son of man. We talked about that last, last week where we saw that for the first time. 
It's a messianic title from Daniel chapter 7 that Jesus applies to himself. And the connection is this. The son of man is the son of God. And so to prove the son of man had the authority on earth to forgive sin, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And guess what? He got off on his two legs, folded up his mat, and he went home. Jesus healed him. And it was evident that Jesus had the authority to heal, but more importantly, more importantly, it was evident that Jesus had the authority to forgive sin. To forgive this man's sin and to forgive your sin and my sin. This is a foreshadow of what would be accomplished on the cross. And Jesus proved his point. And it says that when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. You understand why they were afraid? Because they put, they connected the dots. If he can tell the paralytic to rise, he can forgive sin. Three miracles that we see here, this miracle of, on, the, on the Sea of Galilee, the miracle with the demon-possessed man, the miracle of the paralytic being healed, they're, they're demonstrating to us that Jesus is the king of the kingdom, but he's the prince of peace. He, he is the prince of peace over the material world, the spiritual world, and the moral condition of mankind. And Matthew then tells us about how this was affecting people as all this went on. Look at verse 9 of chapter 9. It says this, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. This is the writer of this gospel. This is Matthew telling his own story. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Matthew's name is Levi. We see that elsewhere in the scriptures, which suggests this. He comes from the tribe of Levi. He's probably got some sort of priestly line in his, in his family. But he was a tax collector. He was working as a tax collector for the Romans. Now the Jews... Hated tax collectors. They're just like you and me. They hated tax collectors. And they hated Matthew especially because Matthew was a Jewish man who had sold out his people to serve the Romans and to make money off his own brothers. I mean, as a tax collector, collector Matthew had a lot of power. A lot of power. He, he could vent his spite against someone. You know, he could play favorites. He could inflict hardship. Uh, a Roman tax collector had the power to force a merchant to stop while they were on a journey, maybe traveling between two communities. He could force them to unload their animals or their carts. He could rifle through everything that they had. He even had the authority to read private mail. Get this, yeah, CRA right there, no. Matthew could get in there. He had the ability to make life miserable. Think about it, road tax, Bridge tolls, harbor dues, property taxes, water meters, garbage disposal, <laughs> you know, recycling fees, environmental levies, all Matthew's department. <laughs> and whatever he could come up with and as much as he could squeeze for the Romans and for himself, he would do. And so he was hated. He was hated. He was excluded from the synagogue. He did not have, his, his family abandoned him. His friends abandoned, he sold out, man. He sold out for the Roman denarius. 
I, I mean, I even think about Matthew, and I, I think there had to have been times where prior to this story, he'd put the squeeze on Peter and Andrew. He'd put the squeeze on James and John, their fishing business. He taxed the quota of fish. He demanded to see the fishing license. I mean, you get the idea. And one day, Jesus approached his tax booth and said this, follow me. And that was it. That was it. Matthew left behind everything to follow Jesus. He left it all behind at that call, follow me. Jesus knew the man and he knew the heart of the man. We see that through these accounts that he knew what was in someone's heart. And he knew Matthew's longing. He knew Matthew's desires. His, his, you know, obviously Matthew was familiar with Jesus, familiar with his teachings, familiar with all that had been going on in Capernaum and the surrounding area. And, and from that day, Matthew left everything to follow Jesus. And we read this in verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, this is Matthew's house, and as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Who, who was Matthew's friends? He did, wasn't friends with anybody else except those he did business with. Other tax collectors, that's what his circle of friends was reduced to. Gentiles, Romans, you know, prostitutes, whatever the deal was. That's who he hung out with. Many tax collectors and sinners came and they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, Matthew loved the Lord. Matthew loved the lost. And so he threw his party. He threw a party in his house um, to, you know, introduce his friends to Jesus. He invited friends, many tax collectors we read here, sinners came, and they came to meet Matthew's new friend, Jesus. And as they observed the party, the, the Pharisees, as they were watching this whole thing go on and in the town of Capernaum, the, the Pharisees were sure that they had been right about Jesus. The, the, these thoughts that they were starting to compile about Jesus, that he was a blasphemer. Because certainly no self-respecting religious Jew, a teacher, a, you know, a, a rabbi would hang out with such a crowd. And so the Pharisees asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Of course, we know this. To sit in that culture was to have someone in your home and to share a meal was, was friendship. It was a sign of relationship. And so the Pharisees asked the disciples this question. Why does your teacher do this? And this, the disciples, I mean, I, they don't answer. I don't know if they didn't know what to say. Maybe they're wondering the same thing themselves at this point in time with Jesus. Yeah, I don't know. Good question. Why does he hang out with these sinners? But Jesus was ready to answer the critics and he said this. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
See, a doctor, if a doctor only had patience with good, perfect health, then what kind of doctor would they be? That's what Jesus is saying. A doctor goes, a physician goes to where sick people are. That's the reason, you know, someone goes into medicine to help people, to help the sick. And Jesus said this, go and learn what this means, he said to the Pharisees. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is saying this, and you need to go and learn the heart of God. Go and learn the heart of God. God wants us to show mercy. I love this. He said, I didn't, I didn't come to save the righteous, but to lead sinners to repentance. See, Jesus wants us to have the compassion and mercy that he has. And Jesus is saying this, look at, I came to help people who were aware of their need. Those who know that they're sick. Those who don't know that they're sick don't go to the physician. Otherwise, the Pharisees would have been sitting around the table as well. They didn't go to the physician to be healed. They thought they were well. And you know, I think about the Pharisees and, and, and I think about you and I and, and Christians and the church and our influence and culture. And I would say this, there, there is nothing attractive about a holier-than-thou attitude. I don't find that attractive. I don't know about you. I, the world doesn't find it attractive. And there should be something about our lives as we follow Jesus that people say, wow, man, I want to be like that. I want what they have. I, I, wa I want the life and the joy that I see in those Christians' lives. You know, we need to have more parties like the one Matthew threw, where we open up our hearts and we open up our homes to our neighbors and those who are lost and and we just say, man, I want, I want you to be exposed to the life that we have in this house because we have Jesus. I, I want you to be exposed to the one who is changing my life. I want you to see the mercy and, and the grace of God that Jesus has brought into my life. I, I'm not the person I once was. Come hang out with me and see the difference in my life. That's Matthew. Come hang out with me and see the difference Jesus has made. And, and even though I've changed, you're not going to find me thumbing my religious nose at you. I'm a person who was sick and Jesus is saving me. He saved me and he's saving me. And, and with this story, we, we see the, the changing attitude of the religious elite towards Jesus. There were those who were accepting Jesus like Matthew, like the sinners, like the tax collectors. But there were those who were growing in their rejection of Jesus who wanted to send him away like the town, the city and the Gadarenes. We read in verse 14, it says this. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch, for the patch tears away from the garment, and, the wor and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. 
If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Here Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. In the previous account, encounter with the Pharisees at Matthew's house, he, he basically refers to himself as a physician. He says, I, I've come to call sinners to spiritual health. As a bridegroom, he, he came to bring joy, he's saying. I came to bring life. You know, living for Jesus isn't a funeral. I don't know if you, it's not a funeral living for Jesus. Jesus wants to, you know, turn frowns upside down. That's what he, <laughs> that's what he wants to do in your life. And Jesus uses two illustrations to demonstrate that he is the bridegroom that has come to bring life, to bring joy to life. The cloth with the patch shown onto it. And Jesus says that doesn't work. It doesn't work. The cloth reminds us that, that Jesus came to bring wholeness, spiritual wholeness. He hasn't shown up just to patch things up. Look at Jesus isn't looking to just patch your life up so you know you can get through. So that we could just fall apart again. Jesus came to do something new. To do something new in your life. The wineskin teaches us that, that he gives spiritual fullness. I think of wine in the scripture. Wine is always a picture of the Holy Spirit. In Judaism, the old system, the old religious system was an old wineskin that, that if the, you know, the message of the gospel was poured into it or the wine of the Holy Spirit was poured into this old wineskin, it, it would burst. And Jesus is saying, I, I didn't come to just mix together the old and the new. I didn't, I didn't come together to mix law and grace. I didn't come to renovate Moses. I came to give new life and that through the Holy Spirit. And I think about this, this whole account, these, these three miracles and these stories about Jesus. And I think the application for us is this, is that Jesus is the prince of peace over the material world, the, the spiritual world, and the moral condition of man. And he came as a physician. He came not to call the righteous, but to call the sick, to call those who were aware of their own need, their need for the physician. And this story of Matthew, these power conflicts where we see the demonstration of Jesus' power, tell us this. Jesus wants to do a new work. In your life, Jesus wants to do a new work. That's exciting. He's not just trying to patch it up and get you through. He didn't come to recycle that which is dried out and pour new wine into it. His heart towards you is peace. His heart towards you is peace and his desire is for a fresh work of the spirit in your life. And he wants to touch your material world, your spiritual world, and the moral condition of your heart. And he'll make it all new. Tear it all down and renovate and build something beautiful for his name and for his glory and that will transform your life. I don't know about you, but I, I, I read this and I think, man, God, I want that. I want that. I, I desire that fresh work of your spirit. I don't want you to patch my life up, Jesus. Transform it. Transform my life. 
And so this morning, I, I want to pray for you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. I'm going to invite you guys to stand with me. Would you stand? Are we singing, Lord, I need you? Yes. Yeah, we are. We're going to sing, Lord, I need you, which is just perfect. Because that condition for us never changes. And you know, maybe this, this morning for you, you need Jesus to touch your material world <laughs> or your spiritual world. Or you need him to do a work in the moral nature, the guilt or the the residue, the sin's residue, the, the damage that it's left behind. And, and I would tell you this, God's spirit is here this morning and he wants to touch those individual areas, maybe all three areas of your life this morning. And so as we pray, I, what I want to do is just ask you, encourage you to take time to say, as we sing, I need you, as we pray this morning, that you'd, that you'd invite Jesus. It's a step of faith. Like the disciples in the boat, sometimes it's mingled with fear. Sometimes it's just a cry of fear. I don't want my life to be like this. Sometimes it's a cry of faith. I invite you just to say, Jesus, come and touch my life in those areas. Fill me with your spirit. Make me new. Make me new by your presence. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, we just thank you for your grace, Lord. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love. We thank you for your power, Jesus. You are the Prince of Peace. You can settle the storms in our lives, the, the spiritual issues. You can touch the moral issues in our life. And Jesus, right now, we invite you to come into us, Lord, to come into our hearts, to come into our lives, not to patch up, but to make new. Transform us, Jesus. And Jesus, we just acknowledge that you are the Son of Man and the Son of God. You have the authority to totally renovate our lives, the power to do so, the power to still the storms, the power to set us free spiritually, the power for us to experience the forgiveness of sin. And so, Jesus, we invite that work in our lives. And we pray, God, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus, making all things new. Amen. Amen. Let's sing.